Last week, we began a series on headship and how that principle is applied to men and women, and I might add, all men, and even Jesus Christ, through the localized and ancient Corinthian custom of head coverings. We didn't get into the specifics of how any of this plays out in the actual head coverings, but we did lay a foundation, which I want to remind you of before we get into our text for this morning. By way of review, last week when we began this series, we looked at verses 2 and 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, let me read those for you. Paul writes, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. There are a few key principles that I laid out that I want to remind you of because they will deepen our understanding of why Paul brings up this topic of head coverings. But for some of us, these foundational principles will also keep us from jumping to conclusions or reacting to wrong assumptions, especially those that have been laid out by our secular society. The first principle is that this is apostolic instruction. To put it simply, this is from God. This is God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Paul. It is Scripture. It is the Bible. It is the Word of God. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not outdated. This is never-changing, always-applicable truth from God. The plan of submission in all its forms and relationships, even within the Godhead, the Trinity, was God's plan from eternity past. Though modern secular society does not like it, their views or feelings do not hold a candle to either God or eternity. Another principle that we saw last week is that we need to let God define the terms and let his word speak for itself. In other words, we cannot add to his word or insist that it's saying something that it's not simply because someone other than God interprets it that way. Specifically, in this context, submission does not mean inequality. People say it does. People are wrong. Submission does not mean inequality according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are very clear about equality of all races, of all genders. Jesus Christ did not shed lesser blood for women or different races. He shed blood for all. All are in the church. All barriers have been broken down. In verse 3, we saw that even Jesus Christ submitted to the Father's will, and yet we know that they are eternally and ontologically, that is, in their substance, equal. You would never say that the second person of the Trinity is unequal to God the Father just because he submits to the Father's will. And then the Holy Spirit submits to both the Son and the Father, and yet over and over again in Scripture we are told that they are equal. In the same way, though women are to submit to men, this has nothing to do with inequality or equality for that matter. And Paul will later appeal to creation and mutual dependence to help us understand this. 
But none of this matters, helps, or even makes sense if you don't let God speak for Himself, but let society speak on His behalf. I would warn you that if this passage is considered outdated, then you could say that of any passage, and then we are in deep, deep trouble. The last point that I brought up that I want to remind you of is that submission brings dignity and honor to the one submitting. It brings dignity and honor to us as we submit to our Heavenly Father. But can it also bring shame to the one we are supposed to submit to if we do not do it properly? We understand this. In disobedience, in sin, we defame the name of Christ. We rob Him of glory. But in all relationships, this is also true. You can bring dignity and honor to the one you are submitting to and are to submit to. And I clarify that because there are people that we tend to submit to that the Bible never says we are to submit to. That's no good. But we are bringing dignity and honor to those we submit to when we do it in a biblical way. But we also bring shame to them when we do it in an unbiblical way or don't do it at all whether that's man to Christ, Christ to the Father, or woman to man. And again, right now, if you are bothered right now based on what I've just said, or if you are rejoicing and worshiping, or if you believe secular society. Because the Word of God is very clear, and it is true. Not to say that if you are not worshiping right now, it's because you disagree with Scripture. It may be because secular society has infiltrated your thinking. Perhaps even your feelings and your human view of fairness have infiltrated your thinking. And so you look at this passage and you say, well, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to grin and bear it and I'm not going to enjoy it. I guess that's better than nothing, but that's not what God wants. God God wants your heart. God wants you to rejoice in everything in His sovereignty. Whether it is, as I mentioned last week, the severe disease of my son, or any other trial, or things that are good, such as God's plan of submission. Now for today's text, verses 4-6 through in 1 Corinthians 11. Now we get into the particulars of this localized custom of head coverings. He says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. This morning I want to give you three explanatory elements of head coverings. What exactly are they? What is Paul talking about? This is not something we do today. This is not something that's commanded for churches today. So let's explain. Three explanatory elements of head coverings. The first, the context. The context. If you're familiar with our church and my preaching, you know that I go verse by verse. And generally, when I give you an outline, each 
correlates to each successive verse. This first explanatory element, the context, fills in all three of these verses and really the whole passage because I want to give you uh, the historical context, which usually is just a blip, but there's a lot here. And so I want to dedicate a whole point so that we can get an understanding of what this is. So this really comes mainly from verses 4 and 5, but also verse 6 as it pertains to our passage this morning, the context. Let me set the context for you. See, there is a general principle that Paul is laying out, but to grasp that principle, we have to understand the context. We do this in everyday life, right? We, we have to understand what's going on in a particular issue. Why are you so frustrated with that particular manager at work? But we look at the bigger context. What is your job? What are you supposed to do? What is the manager doing? What does the CEO want all of you to do? The context helps us understand the particular issue of head coverings and the broader principle of submission. So first, Paul mentions praying and prophesying for the man in verse 3 and the woman in verse 4. This would be a reference to public ministry. In other words, any ministry that is outside the privacy of one's home or in your own home, but there are other people outside of your family that are there. So anything done in a public setting. We understand this. This can be a worship service. This can be a gathering with believers. This could just be out in public with believers or unbelievers. Public ministry can be evangelism to people at the bus stop, right? Any sort of public ministry. In other words, in this culture, head coverings would not have been required when you're in your own home. We know elsewhere what Paul says about male leadership in the church, so this probably doesn't refer to a broader worship service for women. But what do praying and prophesying mean? Praying would be, in this context, public praying, uh, praying that you could hear, someone else could hear, right? could be part of a worship service. This is praying for someone out loud, praying. We get it. Prophesying might be a little more confusing because of the miraculous gift of prophesying that is no longer in existence. Prophesying literally means to tell forth, to speak forth. Often refers to a sermon, a pastor preaching a sermon. But more generally, it can refer to simply telling others something about God. Very general. So yes, this could be evangelism. You're telling someone about God. But this could be just edifying another believer, sharing with another believer what you've learned in your quiet times, preaching a sermon, sharing a devotional, leading a small group, any of those things. Simply telling someone something about God, forth-telling about God. That's prophesying. And again, all of this is within the context of public ministry. The issue that Paul is bringing out is not public ministry, although that serves as a backdrop for his main point, but again, it's head coverings. These head coverings would be something that was put on the head and was familiar in ancient Corinth, and we actually believe that it was localized to that area. It wasn't even something that was found throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, this local Corinthian custom clearly has a great significance 
and is connected to the principle of headship that we saw last week. Now, we don't have enough historical or archaeological data to give us particulars on what the situation or the specific issue is that the Corinthians are probably asking Paul about. We're not even sure what the head covering is. Some people say it's more like a veil. Some people say that it was a a veil that goes down the back of the head. We don't know. We just know it's something that went on top of the head. But it's something that the Corinthians would do. It was not just a Christian thing. It was a culturally accepted and actually a culturally required aspect of marriage. And so for someone, a woman, to wear a head covering in public was a sign that she was indeed married. She was not single. Don't ask her on a date. In fact, so much so, for a woman to go out in public without a head covering, and here we get more to the point, was shameful to the husband to the degree that the Jews allowed divorce for this reason. Simply for a Jewish wife going out without a head covering. Now, you may see, think that's extreme, but it's even more extreme should a married woman go out without a veil in some Middle Eastern countries, right? I believe death is legal. And so we understand in certain cultures this is a significant thing. Probably the best, but still not good, a modern wedding ring would be a similarity. The key difference being in our culture, men also wear uh, a wedding ring, Whereas back then, clearly, a man would not wear a head covering. It is simply an outward symbol that you are in a marriage relationship. Now, we really need to understand the significance of this because we, we may not understand that today. Right? Our culture is so fluid, and for better or worse, it is so uh, accepting that anyone can do anything and it's okay. But if you've ever visited another culture uh, or visited another culture and tried really hard to respect that culture and not offend the locals, or if you've studied history, you understand that in certain cultures, certain things were very, very significant. See, we may not get it because if you show up somewhere and you're not wearing your wedding ring, oh, I'm getting it cleaned, oh, I take it off when I sleep, I just forgot it, I was in a rush, no big deal. Your husband's not going to divorce you for it. We're not going to kick you out of the church for it. You forgot your ring. Who cares? It's nothing big. But back then, for a woman to not wear a head covering out in public was absolutely scandalous. It was really, really bad. As a single man, you would never approach a woman with a head covering. She's spoken for. To treat her as single would be horrible. It would be scandalous. It would be sinful. What's more, for the woman to purposely remove her head covering in public would be even more horrible because she is actively trying to give the impression that she is sexually available. And again, even today, especially in the Middle East, married women wear veils for the same reason. From the context... What we do know is that this is a big issue and one that the Corinthians were familiar with. 
In other words, Paul doesn't bring this up randomly in this letter, and the Corinthians are reading this, saying, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. Wait, head coverings, what in the world is he talking about? In fact, it's quite likely, as we have already seen throughout this epistle, that the Corinthians had specifically sent Paul a question about this issue. So strange or even outrageous as this may sound to us today, it was a normal, accepted, and expected reality for them. Now there's one final cultural issue that I want to explain, which is found at the end of verse 5, as well as verse 6, a woman whose head is shaved. Verse 6 references the same thing, but also includes having her hair cut. Again, this is something that doesn't apply today. But when a woman back then who was married and was caught committing adultery, her punishment would be her head was shaved so that everywhere she went, she would carry the shame of the public knowing that she had committed adultery. This was also the practice of women convicted of prostitution. And there was a third, although not as common, group of women who would have their head shaved, and that was slaves. But with any or all of these, you can see why a free married woman would not want to have their head shaved. Again, today, it's just a fashion statement. It may be modern medicine is why she is bald. But back then, it had a very different meaning. So, before we move on, to summarize the contextual points, and remember, history is history. We must respect what history tells us about that day and age, even if it's something, if it's something we would not do or agree with today. We must appreciate how people behaved and what they believed in their context. So, summary Praying and prophesying refer to public ministry. Head coverings were a cultural requirement for married women. Head coverings were localized to that time and place. And women with shaved heads were either adulteresses, prostitutes, or slaves. So now let's see how Paul uses all of these to teach us about God's glory through biblical roles in our second explanatory element of head coverings, the contrast. The contrast. Let me read for you again uh, verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So Paul begins by saying that when a man is performing these aspects of ministry, whatever form it may take, and he has a head covering on, then it is a disgrace. It is a dishonor to his head. On the flip side, quite simply, if a woman performs these aspects of ministry without a head covering on her head, then she disgraces or dishonors her head. What is important here is not so much the custom, because the custom doesn't carry over to us 2,000 years later in a different place, but the significance of the custom, and this is what Paul gets at. You could imagine, as they have with other things, that the Corinthians are trying to get him to address a specific issue, 
But in God's plan and wisdom, he addresses a bigger principle. Head coverings, as we have seen, were for women. So just as it would be shameful for a married woman to go out in public without a head covering, so it would be extra shameful for her to do ministry without a head covering. By contrast, for a man to wear a head covering while ministering would be equally shameful as this was something reserved for women. So on the one hand, it would be like a woman pursuing an adulterous relationship. That's bad. But then going to church and then bragging to the kids to whom she is teaching Sunday school about her affair. That'd be really bad. That's why it's bad to do it in public. It's worse to do ministry while doing this flagrant, uh, just affront to her commitment to her husband. For a man to wear a head covering while ministering would be like me, with absolute sincerity and trying to make a point, coming up here and wearing a woman's dress to preach the word. The humor of that visual aside, if you heard of a pastor doing that with full sincerity, trying to perhaps make a point in today's culture, you would take serious issue with it. You would say that's just wrong. The importance of what Paul is saying focuses on verse 5 where he addresses the women. By not wearing the head covering, women disgrace both their own head physically, that is, they embarrass themselves, but also their head figuratively, that is, their husband. Thus Paul's use of the word disgrace. Keep in mind that for the man to wear a head covering would also disgrace his physical head and his figurative head, Jesus Christ. Now we start to understand the bigger picture. It's not just about this physical head covering any more than our last study was about just eating meat. There's a bigger picture here. The bigger issue is not even the shame one would bring on her husband, although that is a significant issue. The bigger issue is, and always is, God's glory. Because when you take issue with a culturally required symbol of submission and faithfulness to your husband that is also required in the Scriptures, you take issue with God's plan and call for your life. That's a big deal. Which is why Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 5 that if she's going to do such a thing, she might as well have her head shaved like a prostitute or adultery. That's how big of a deal it is. Again, not the head covering, but what the head covering or going without the head covering represents and symbolizes. Shave her head not because she is actually a prostitute or an adulterer, but because she is purposely removing the external markers of faithfulness to her God by fulfilling her God-given role. And this leads us to our final explanatory element of head coverings, the consequence. We've seen the context, we've seen the contrast, and now the consequence. Verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, 
which it is, then let her cover her head. Really simple. The head covering in Paul's day showed one subordinate relationship to the husband. It was an act of rebellion to minister or worship without the head covering. It was a clear act of defiance of her relationship with her husband, as well as a public display of disrespect for her marriage and the institution of marriage in the eyes of God. It would be along the same lines as a married woman today saying, Honey, some of my single friends gave me a call. They want to have a girls' night out. We're going to go to a bar. And she purposely takes off her wedding ring, leaves it in her house so the bachelors at the bar would not know she was married, and then purposely dressing immodestly to attract those men. That is what it would be like for a woman to go out in public without a head covering in ancient Corinth. Absolutely inappropriate and offensive. Ashamed to herself, ashamed to her husband, ashamed to her God. And hopefully that analogy helps you see Paul's point. That if you're going to go out without a head covering, if you're going to go out and dress like purposely take off your wedding ring and flirt with single guys at a bar, then you might as well shave your hair like a prostitute or an adulteress. Now what Paul is doing here is he's creating shock value. He's correlating the punishment for prostitutes with not wearing a head covering to show just how shameful it is because we see. He's comparing it and basically he hopes that they will come to the conclusion that if you're not going to go without a head covering, you might as well shave your head. So, at the end of verse 6, just wear your head covering. What you need to understand is that the ability to shame herself and her family to this degree shows the incredible honor and power God has given her. To be able to uphold or destroy the family with a simple attitude that leads to an even simpler act. Have the right attitude of wanting to honor your husband and your Lord, simply wear the covering. Have the wrong attitude of wanting to assert your independence, simply leave the covering at home. And then destroy everything. Don't tell me God has not given women great dignity. I should probably also mention that secular historians have told us that there were various social movements of feminism in the Roman Empire during Paul's day. So the temptation was real. The temptation, as we have that temptation today, to believe society's lies and the twisting of Scripture and God's design for men and women. So, throw out your head coverings, just as the modern feminist movement decades ago called for throwing out of bras. Again, it's not the garment, it's the significance of that act and what that symbolizes. And one of the big picture problems here is one that we face today, but in a more dramatic way, although the the issue is ultimately the same. The removing of the head covering and the removing of many things in our culture 
The issue is the breakdown of gender distinctions. The breakdown of gender distinctions. We don't just take issue with the fact that there are some people with great power in our country that want preteens to be able to have their genitals dissolved out of their body. That's a big deal. And it, because it's, it, it's so radically gross that we think it's the biggest deal, but the biggest deal is the breakdown of gender distinctions, which also happens when husbands don't lead and wives don't submit. That's big picture, as big a deal biblically as a child removing their genitals because it's the same biblical issue. Paul is asking, he says, do you really want to shame yourself, your family, your church, and your God? But bigger picture, he is also asking, do you really choose to no longer be honored as a woman? And now that we have this understanding, it probably comes as no surprise to you that there was a fourth main group of women in that culture that would shave their heads. We have women who had been caught committing adultery, prostitutes, slaves, and then only the most extreme of feminists for this very reason to break down gender distinctions and gender roles. The point Paul is making in verse 6 is that if a woman is going to take off the cultural symbol of her role and her femininity, then she might as well go all the way in her rejection of her role and shave her head. Many years ago, just thought about it, it's actually many, many years ago now, uh, when I was in college, I had a friend who was the same year as me but was going to a different college. I, I knew her from uh, actually this city in Burlingame from our uh, church youth group. And she called me. I believe we were both first-year students uh, in college. And her younger sister, whom I knew also from youth group, was still in high school. And my friend called me and she said, I'm worried about my younger sister As you know, she's on the cheerleading team. She's getting involved with some pretty bad stuff for her age. Uh, Probably normal for her age today, but back then, pretty bad stuff. You know, some drugs and some alcohol and things like that. And my friend said, what do I tell her? What do I do? And so I had no idea, so I went to my college pastor. Uh, He used to come on campus uh, once a week, sit at the treehouse. Does that still exist, the treehouse out there? No? Okay. But uh, there's this part of the student union we called the treehouse, and he would sit there and just meet with people, and I told him the situation. And what he told me kind of shocked me, still shocks me as I relay it to people. He said, because this girl in high school was still saying she was a Christian. He said, listen, She either needs to choose God and go all out or choose the world and go all out. 
You can't do both. There's no lukewarm Christian. There's no 50-50. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. So she needs to make a choice. Obviously, when he said that and when I say that, we hope and expect, if they're true believers, that they will make the choice for God. But as shocking as that statement is, that's the reality. We see it throughout the Scriptures, particularly in 1 John. If you love the world, you hate God. And if you love God, you hate the world. You can't do both. Love and hate. There's no you can like God and like the world. There's no you can love God and love the world. Or love God and just kind of like the world. It's love and hate. Hate and love. And this is where I believe his advice came from. Pick one and go all out. Free yourself of the guilt. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop deceiving the church. Stop blaspheming God. Stop trying to do both. When it comes to our God-given roles, either choose Christ and go all out, or choose the world and go all out. Either choose Christ, say you're a Christian, and joyfully worship in your role as a woman, or choose the world and go all out. What do I mean? You cannot be a Christian woman and reject your God-given role. They are incompatible. You cannot be a Christian man and reject your God-given role. They are incompatible. You say, I struggle with this. I'm growing in this. Praise God. You say, but I can't do both. What I am saying is, and this is what Paul is saying, Would you say there's such thing as a Christian prostitute? I'm using Paul's analogy here. You say, no, but I could see how someone who was a prostitute came to Christ and they're trying to get out of that lifestyle, but they can't because someone kind of owns them, right? And you say, yeah, I, I get it, right? It's a work in process, right? You would say that's possible. But as an overarching theme, you say, no, that's impossible. They are incompatible. Why? Because of her profession, how she makes money? No. You go back to what the sin is, and that is a form of adultery, right? Whether married or single, she's sleeping with people who are not her husband or her wife. That's incompatible with Christianity. You may think what I just said about God-given roles is pretty extreme, but you could say that about anything. We've just kind of forgotten the significance of God-given roles. You could say, hey, this guy's a compulsive liar. Is that compatible with Christianity? No. This man habitually beats his children in anger. Is that compatible with Christianity? No. No. Are there Christians who lie all the time? Yes, and hopefully they're striving to repent. Are there Christians that beat their children? Unfortunately, yes, but they're trying to repent. So it can happen, but it's incompatible. It's not how it should be. So in the marriage, if you claim Christ as your Lord, then submit to your husband and lead your wife. 
You cannot claim Christ as your Lord and submit to your wife or lead your husband. They are incompatible. Any more than Jesus can say, no, God the Father, you come down and die on the cross. For Holy Spirit say, no, Jesus, you come in and dwell and convict them of sin. No. They submit to one another and they all have their roles. So much so are they incompatible that Paul says that if you choose to do that, you might as well label yourself a prostitute. It is that serious. I understand that when it comes to such things, people have personal and selfish reasons for their decisions. But we all know that the repercussions of one person's selfishness is never limited to that individual. It hurts many people. And this is very true here. Paul is pointing out the shame not just to the woman in question, but the shame it brings to her family, to her church, and most importantly, to her God. And I would say again, though it's not in this text, same thing with men when you're not leading your families. There's absolutely no place here for feelings of inadequacy. And I understand those are very real, but the Scriptures don't allow for that. It's okay to feel that way. But what I mean when I say the Scriptures don't allow for it, it doesn't make it okay to disobey. There's no room here for human, view, human views of fairness or really anything else that is not from God. You see, those views and feelings come from society. And you've probably noticed that society is not overly concerned about proving the Bible true or right. Quite the opposite. And as I said last week, the choice here is not head covering or not, wedding ring or not. The choice ultimately isn't even submission or not. The choice here is worship or not. Worship or not. It isn't fulfilling your roles or not. It's following God or not. What's your choice? What are you going to do? Nowhere here does it say it's easy. It is neither easy to submit, nor is it easy to lead in any capacity. Those of you guys who know me well, you know how hard. The, the, the better you know me, the harder it is to submit to my authority as your pastor. Partly because I make fun of you so much, tease you so much. But many of you have also seen that as you have grown in the Lord and as you have grown in your love for God and love for your spouse, it becomes a lot easier. That's spiritual maturity. That's marital maturity. That's it clicking that you're not fighting against feelings and fighting against, like I, I said earlier, yeah, I'm just supposed to do it, so I'm going to do it. That's, that's never ideal for anything. God, I know I'm supposed to go to church, so I'm going to go. Not going to enjoy it, but I'll go to church. Oh, you know, we're like Jonah. Fine, I'll share the gospel with them, right? Embarrassed, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to fire me. They're going to mock me. They're going to, you know, we do things. And but 
sometimes it just clicks. Our worship gets to a point where it just clicks, and you're like, man, I want to do this. This is good. This is joy. This is fun. This, this is what I want to do with my life, with my time, with my energy, with my words, with my, every ounce of my being. Because it clicks that this is how it is supposed to be. Pray. Pray that the Lord would weed out what secular society has put into your head. I get it. It's not easy. The number in secular society is greater than the number in the church. Secular society owns the media. Secular, or excuse me, secular society owns the media, both conservative and liberal media. You understand this. Secular society owns the biggest publishing houses. They own the fashion industry. They own Hollywood. Yeah, there's Christians speckled here and there, but they're owned by pagans. And so what is force-fed to us through social media, through normal media, through how people dress, through interviews of our favorite celebrities, of what's said in, in the commercials, in the Super Bowl, all of it is against God, against roles, against what we are supposed to do. It is hard. Pastor, are you saying turn off your TV? Maybe, if that's what's going to work for you, if that's what you need. History has shown and the Bible has said that becoming a hermit does not work. That's not what we're called to do. Can't just go find Christian-owned stores, Christian hairdresser, Christian mechanic, Christian doctor. We've got to be in the world to proclaim the gospel. But we need to be wise. We need to understand that there may not be individual people who are on board with this, but everyone has an agenda. Everyone. It's not a bad word. We have an agenda. I have an agenda. You're hearing it right now. My agenda is to remove you more from the thinking of society and more to God's Word. My agenda is, if you don't know Christ this morning, is to lead you to a saving knowledge of Christ. I have an agenda. I'm not offended when you say, that pastor, he has an agenda. Absolutely, I have an agenda. We should all have an agenda. But understand that the world has an agenda too. And it's not the Bible. And if it is the Bible, it is the attempt to debunk the Bible or twist the Bible. And so, we need to stick with God's Word to strive, to fight, to try harder and harder. Some of you need to go home tonight and have a really long biblical discussion with your spouse. Sandwiched in between before and after a long spiritual discussion with the Lord on your knees in prayer. Let's fulfill our roles. It's an issue that we don't take as seriously as adultery or as lying or theft or things like that. But clearly, Paul takes it just as seriously as this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we...
have a choice, not just in marriage, but even as singles, to accept and to find joy in and worship through our God-given roles. Even the reality of what we have seen and continue to see in this passage of the subordination of women to men just seems like such a nasty thing to say because of the culture. And yet you have extolled it as a beautiful and wonderful thing. So much so that even you, Lord Jesus, submitted and are subordinate to the Father, to the benefit and salvation of all of us here. Father, for those in our congregation that are struggling with these roles, whether a grasp of it as a single or a, a grasp and, and living it out as, as a married person, I just pray that you would help us to repent, to excel still more, to strive, to do it because it glorifies you, not to avoid it because he does or she doesn't or whatever it may be. Help us just do because you desire it. You have so wonderfully created us in this way. Pray these things in Jesus' name.